This podcast is part of the Sports History Network, your headquarters for the yesteryear of your favorite sport. You can learn more at sportshistorynetwork.com. All right, everyone, welcome back to the Football Odyssey. This is your host, Aaron Harris. On today's show, I'm pleased to welcome Tim Hanlon. Tim is the host and producer of Good Seats Still Available, a curious little podcast devoted to the exploration of what used to be in professional sports. In this episode, Tim and I discuss his roots as a podcaster and take a trip down memory lane for a fun and nostalgic conversation surrounding defunct football teams, rival football leagues, and much more. I think you all will enjoy hearing what Tim has to say being on the other end of an interview, and I highly recommend his show to anyone who hasn't listened to it, but appreciates obscure and vintage sports stories. So with that being said, thank you everyone for tuning in, and enjoy the show. All right, Tim Halen, the host of Good Seats Still Available. How are you, sir? Oh, I'm doing great. I appreciate your uh, your uh, calling me and asking me to to do this. I'm honored. Yeah, of course, it's a pleasure. You're uh, 40 years into the show now. <laughs> Jeez, yeah. I, I sometimes it seems like it just started yesterday, and on, on uh, usually when a deadline is bearing down on me, it seems like it's been forever. So it's somewhere in between. But yes, according to the calendar, it's been four years. The show as it currently is, do you think that it's consistent with the vision you had going into the show? Or do you think in some respects it's kind of taken on a life of its own? Wow, good question. I um so I, you know, look, the, the whole premise is is uh a a a somewhat odd and borderline uh perverse fascination, uh interest in uh teams and leagues. Uh, no longer with us, right? That could be defunct. That could be previously domiciled. Uh, it's even, frankly, gotten a little bit into uh, things outside of team-centric leagues uh, and sports, right? So events like we uh, the Tour de Trump, for example, um, you know, or or uh, you know, other. Yeah, you know, I think the superstars is going to be something in our in our future. I mean, there there is these. You can bend and squint really hard, right? And uh, sort of remember and see sort of professional events uh, and leagues and, and teams and all that kind of stuff. Um, I, I, it really just started, frankly, as a, a diversion, right? Just a, just a, um, an artistic, if you will, um, diversion from uh, just, you know, the day job. I work in, in the realm of media uh, uh, consulting um, for the media industry, advertising and technology and stuff. Uh, and the family, I got two, you know, teenage girls. That's all you need to know. Uh, that my wife and I have to, you know, uh, you, you can, you can't control them, but you can, you can only hope to contain them. Right. Um, but this, this is something for me. And, and one of these weird things in, you know, as I, I've sort of supposedly grown up, uh, has been this very, uh, uh, just sort of, um, persistent interest in, uh, these teams and leagues that, that, that don't longer, no longer exist. And, um, I've always tried to figure out an outlet for it. Uh, and you know, I, I always thought it was going to be maybe an encyclopedic kind of book. Um, I thought perhaps that would be, you know, the blog thing. Um, but I, you know, the podcast sort of phenomenon really kind of, uh, captured my attention about six or seven years ago from the day job side of things. Uh, and then I just literally forced myself to go to 
um, conference in Chicago a couple of years ago, about five years ago, called Podcast Movement. It's still around. Um, and it's really sort of a DIY kind of thing. It's like, hey, interested in podcasting? Well, here's two and a half days of people telling you how they did it, how they do it, what to watch out for, how to monetize, all that kind of stuff. So I just, you know, I was like a sponge. And I said, screw it, I could do this. Um, and, and having been a um, college broadcaster in the past, I've worked uh, as a journalist in the past, right? So uh, it, it just all sort of sort of came together and, you know, learn the podcast uh, pieces to it. Um, so when I started out, to your question, um, I really kind of just wanted to just literally just pick a team and every week try to have a conversation around it, preferably with somebody who was either part of it or there at the time. Um, but as we sort of moved along, I recognized that, you know, the, the, as the decades roll on, you know, people die, you know, and the, right. and the stories get, uh, um, you know, forgotten. Uh, and, you know, there's a lot of great stuff out there and you can go into Wikipedia and all that. But I, I really like to talk to people who are, if not at the source, uh, have spent time digging into the source of these stories. Uh, and frankly, largely because nobody else was doing it. Um, it felt untapped to me. I always, you know, when I was growing up, I always remember going to like the bookstore in the sports section and wondering, you know, I was just waiting for that defunct book to be there on the shelf and go, ah, you know, I should have done this. And it never came. <laughs> so I figured, you know, podcasting is probably the quickest way in conversations. I, and I'm just amazed uh, at just how many doors it's opened and further puzzles and enigmas it's uh, uh, laid out for us because as we've talked about on the show and we'll talk about in a few minutes with football in particular, um, defunct, forgotten, relocated, and all those things um, in the realm of pro sports, it is the gift that keeps on giving. And it's as relevant today as it was from when the first ever pro baseball franchise came and went back in the 1800s. Yeah, there's no doubt about it. And like when I first found your show, it was about a year and a half ago. It was kind of a godsend because I love obscure sports stories and particularly football. But you know, you've you've developed this whole community around you that loves these underserved stories that you're not going to get from a lot of the mainstream media outlets. And that's kind of the beauty of podcasting, where anybody can kind of create their own multimedia story around whatever they want. Um, so I, I think it's good that you chose podcasting in particular because it's different whenever you make a YouTube video or when you have a blog where I think you're the one who's coming off as, um, the authority on a subject. Whereas with a podcast, you can have people who are either there or people who have given in-depth research to the topic and they can kind of tell you what they learn. Yeah. Look, and I, and I never, you know, I am by no means an expert on anything. I mean, I may, I may be an occasional expert on certain teams, or leagues that that I'm I'm personally interested in, but I will tell you, the vast majority of, of topics that we've gotten into, I'm either ignorant of, un was unaware of, or frankly, wasn't necessarily interested in. But it fits this sort of odd genre that I created for myself four years ago, unwittingly. So, but it's it's curious, right? That we say it's a curious little podcast. It's not so little anymore. Thank goodness, right. I guess. But the curious part is absolutely there because I, I just I try to approach it with as I, I there's a whole there's a whole ton of stuff I don't know about some of these stories and frankly even the ones I'm most passionate about right so as longtime listeners will know you know this this started out as more I think we've discovered is sort of a uh, a personal um, I guess abandonment 
uh, in my teenage years from the team that I latched onto back then, which was the New York Cosmos of the North American Soccer League, right? And what I have found thematically is, uh, yes, a lot of this, although not exclusively, but it does tend to sort of skew male and, and a little older. Um, mm-hmm. But we, we try to address that uh, on a lot of that. There's a lot of women's sports stuff that we're, we've gotten into and more to come. And, and so we, we need to, you know, we're trying to be as uh, expansionary and, and accommodating as possible through, through a lot of different reasons. But the, 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 the challenge and the reality is that it seems to me that a lot of our most passionate listeners had similar situations, right, in their, let's call it impressionable uh, youth um, or sports fans, either participant or spe- uh, spectator or combinations of the two, have some very memorable experience of that first baseball game, that first football game, that whatever. And if that happened to be in a league that sort of came and went, um, it, it, it just sort of is like a sort of like a double word score. And I think people identify with that. I think people identify with what they were doing at that time, the things, especially if they were interested in sports that they were most interested and passionate about. And as life moves on, as one gets older and, you know, school, career and, and life and all that other stuff, um, you know, it, it's a bit of nostalgia, I think, for, you know, happier times, perhaps when you're younger and a little bit more carefree. And if you happen to have been a sports fan and you happen to have latched on to a, a club or a circuit or something that, that is, isn't around anymore, there's always that sort of curiosity and generally with kind of a sort of a, you know, nostalgic glint and of, uh, of, uh, of happiness, I guess. And I will say this, it, the, the thing that I have learned about this is that everybody's got their own team and sport or whatever sort of vertical passion. Um, very few, although I'm shocked as the weeks go on, the months go on, um, that are just interested in defunctness generally, right? Because, you know, every time I do, you know, a, a third, uh, uh, you know, of the month soccer episode, it's like, oh, where's the football? Where's the hockey? Too much soccer. And then I'll do a whole bunch on hockey and then the football fans will be crying out. And so the, the good news and the bad news is that's good because people are like, okay, I want, I, you know, they're saying what they want. Um, but the, 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 it, this is an equal opportunity storytelling vehicle, I think. And, and there's so many great stories in, around all this stuff. And, you know, if there's a sport or a team or a league that we haven't gotten to yet, hang tight because we'll get there because there's just plenty of it still yet to be explored. Yeah. Well, and that kind of goes back to the point made earlier about, telling stories that are out of the mainstream. I mean, you did an episode on, I think it was the national bowling league. Like where else are you going to hear a story about that aside from your show? I mean, I can't really think of who else would really do something like that. Well, you could also argue why would anybody want to do that? But um, yeah. I, I, it's fascinating to me. I mean, I, you know, I didn't know about it. Right. And I, I, some, I don't know how I discovered it, but to know that there was a team based format, in bowling. And frankly, what that to me did was, okay, well, that sounds odd, but you know, let's, let's scratch the surface of that a little bit. Yeah. Um, what it did was it opened up the door to this other sort of box about pro bowling and what it was going through and what it was like in the late fifties, early sixties. And, and frankly, the origins of the PBA, the professional bowlers association, which is sort of waxed and waned in popularity, especially with television. I mean, we, it was literally this National Bowling League was in direct competition with this tour-based, individual-centric 
Pro Bowlers Association, ultimately the PBA won out as mm-hmm. the way to go to market. In some senses, it's almost like tennis, too. World Team Tennis in the 70s um, was one manner by which the pro game came into sort of um, its own in the 70s. But, you know, people don't sort of remember that there was this thing called World Championship Tennis that was started by Lamar Hunt. And there was also the beginnings of what was a tour-based scenario, too, in the World Tennis Association and then the Women's Tennis Association, right? So, um it, it's interesting. Golf had the same thing. We haven't gotten to it yet, but you know, golf's had a club, a, a, a team centric league approach as well, right? Um, so, to me, this is all fascinating stuff. Most people, vast majority of people, even sports fans, don't even know that stuff. And to me, that's—I don't know why—but to me, that's just fascinating, and I want to know more. Yeah, but given that knowledge that you have, I mean, I know you say you don't think of yourself as an expert, um, even on topics that of teams that you follow. But would you, at the very least, at this point, consider yourself um, a sports historian? Oh, armchair uh, is is got to be the descriptor there. I, I you know, amateur, uh, whatever other you know adjective you want to throw in there. Um, no, I by no means. I mean, I I studied a fair bit of history in college and liberal arts and stuff. I I'm fascinated by history generally nonfiction um but but I, look i think uh sports uh it, you know by definition whether people recognize it or not is essentially um a history lesson now that sounds a little odd right when you're watching the the warriors and the, and the thunder go at it right um i but the reality is that the warriors had a story right they started in this this little city called Philadelphia years and years ago, right? There were people and, and players and, and situations, and, and we've explored a bunch of them. Um, and the, the the Thunder, right? You talk to anybody in Seattle, that's still a very raw topic, even though they moved, what, 10 years ago or so. Mm-hmm. Um, to me, these are living, breathing histories of sports, right? Um doesn't mean you have to be, you know, you have to do the research and do the work and to enjoy it. No, but to me, it's like, okay, how did this get here? You know, how, how do these teams, is it, you don't just sort of wake up one day, oh, there's this National Basketball Association. Well, you know, there, there's a whole fitful story of how this NBA came into being. I mean, if you grew up like I did in the 70s, you know, that's the, I, I was on life support, but it was, certainly was nowhere near what it is today. I mean, I, I could tell you stories about, you know, going to New Jersey Nets games in the Rutgers Athletic Center while the Meadowlands Arena was being built, and 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 that being, you know, supposedly going to be the savior of this of this franchise. That you know, the Nets played all over the place. They played in armories and 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 the AB. I mean, just all kinds of stuff. And to me, again, that's sort of fascinating. And you always wonder. And I guess the the fascination is like you know, in the old days when you would sort of read the media guides or the, uh, the yearbooks and stuff, you'd sort of see this history. It's like okay little snapshots of sort of how this team kind of got there. Where the name come from? What, why the logo is the way it is. Um, I don't know. To me, that's always been kind of the, um, I don't know, the, the door opener to, you know, going into the game and enjoying it, right. It's part of the, it's part of how to enjoy the game is to sort of understand like why this team exists and, and why they look the way they do. And, and um, uh, you know, to me, that's just, that's a huge Pandora's box. And we just, I love to go deep into it and the more obscure stuff, the better. Yeah, I completely agree because it, it seems to definitely like 
you know, these kind of stories, you definitely need to have a sense of history more than, than just sports, but you can learn it through sports too. Um, and well, it's kind of like, Aaron, I also, I, it's, it's also this too. I, and look now, now I'm going to start to be, you know, old man yelling at the clouds. Right. So you know, I'm of a certain age, right. You know, my mid fifties. Right. So young enough yet old enough. Right. And, um, sometimes I wonder which, depending on the time of day you ask me. Um, but I, I, I do think, um, that, these kids today, right? Um, yeah, the, the, the pro sports is professional with a capital P, mm-hmm. um, which is fine, but it is, it is, um, it's gargantuan, right? It's big business. It's private equity. It's SPACs. It's, you know, not that money hasn't been part of the, the fabric of, of pro sports from the earliest days. It certainly has. Um, and some of the themes are universal, big boys and their toys. Uh, centrally owned versus franchised, um, you know, uh, the, just uh, all kinds of sort of things that y- unions versus, uh, you know, the owners and, and that kind of stuff. I, but uh, the, the the level at which this is now, and we've seen it with the Super League, right, in Europe, with the ill-fated Super League, we think ill-fated. Um, I don't know. I, I'm the biggest soccer fan you're going to find, especially of the U.S. variety, which is, you know, a fairly hardy bunch. Um, but you know, we're, we're approaching 30, 32 teams in MLS, you know, do we need how many more, is there another baseball franchise or two still to come? Uh, you know, NHL is getting to 32 soon, you know, with the Kraken coming in and I, I don't know. I mean, maybe, maybe there will be room for 30, 40, 50 teams. I don't know. I, it just, to me, you wonder just how far all of that goes. And, you know, if it takes an economic cycle or two to kind of shake things loose to the foundation a little bit more, I, I, don't, I just don't know if it's completely expansionary forever, right? And I, I just, you know, to me, that also gets away from a little bit of sort of the heart, the soul, the fun, the joy, the competition, that kind of stuff. I, and I think, frankly, like I said before, everything old is new again, all these things all these issues just keep coming around and over and over again. This, this, this thing going on in, in Europe with this proposed Super League is absolutely a great example of where and how and when does it go too far. And, you know, I'm not saying that the Super League idea is necessarily wrong. I think it is largely. I don't think it goes away. I don't, I don't think it's going to stop, you know, big uh, check writing owners to, you know, uh, to billionaire more. Um, but I, you know, I also think it's also, you know, good for the fans that they rebelled and, and sort of fought back and said, you know, this may be a line not to cross. And that gives me hope that maybe the sort of essence of sports, um, can actually sort of retain its soul and its joy and all that, the origination of that stuff, um, before arguably it's too late. Yeah, definitely. Well, yeah, it definitely does feel suffocating at times. You know, I'll read some old, I guess, like embedded journalist books about, you know, a reporter goes and travels with, you know, the Steelers, for example, in the 70s or 
um, like what Paul Zimmerman did with the Jets in the last season of Weave Bank. And, and you just kind of see the cultural difference between a pro athlete back in those days versus today. Because, you know, back then, obviously, you didn't have social media. You didn't have this constant television coverage around athletes. So they kind of felt like just one of the common people. You know, you would often – some people in Pittsburgh would see like Ernie Holmes or Terry Bradshaw out and have a, a beer with them. You know, whereas when the money really started coming in more and more, there became everybody had their guard up, it seemed. And you just feel like there's maybe a little bit of a disconnect more than there's ever been between professional sports and the fan bases that they follow. Yeah, look, and I think football is especially uh, indicative of that. Right. I mean, um, we look back on uh, the experiments that were uh, the second version of the XFL, which might have actually have a third uh, rev to it. Um, and certainly the uh, Alliance uh, of American Football. Um, you know, you, and every time you see a new league that sort of pops up, uh, in football in particular, you, you, uh, you almost to a person, you hear these stories of it's another shot to play. You know, it's, if it's, and if it's not sort of a last chance at the pro thing, right, making a career and a living and, you know, proving, proving my doubters wrong and, and, and getting into the NFL and all that stuff, um, it, it, a lot more of it, actually a whole lot more of it tends to be about, Hey, this is an opportunity for me to continue to play because I love the game. I love playing. Right. I, you know, uh, sometimes people will say I'll pay them to play. Right. Um, and you know, so for whatever reasons, uh, you know, I, and I just, I hear that theme over and over again, especially when there's a new league in a sport that's never sort of been successful on a pro level, or there's yet another uh, iteration, I guess, of the something other than NFL variety of football. Uh, and I still think we'll see more. Um, there is just a, a, a large pool of players that just want to continue to play and have some decent skills. Um, and, you know, I would argue that the, the fans of the AAF team in San Antonio or the XFL team that was in St. Louis, right? These, these, those fan bases as examples uh, you know, I think they were really very much into their teams and uh, looked forward to being able to just, you know, you know, uh, they found them to be accessible. Right. And that's part of the that's part of the mix is you want to sort of promote and, and mingle a bit. And they didn't have any heirs because they're, you know, fledgling and, and struggling and they're to play the game and they're overjoyed to do it. Um, and that's that to me, that's a little bit of the, of the spirit of, of sports that, you know, is largely missing when you get to the top tiers. Yeah, I, I like how you bring up how a lot of these leagues are, in, in some regards, a shot of redemption for people who want to continue playing football. And I think most of them do it with the intent of trying to get back into the NFL because you know the money they're going to be making with a, a league like the AAF is not going to be beneficial to them. Um, yeah, I, I was actually I live in Atlanta, and I actually went to an Atlanta Legends game. And you can see that the fan base, I think, is there. You know, it's obviously not huge, but, you know, you see people generally wanted to support them. Um, But in the back of your mind, you just always kind of think, is this really going to last as long as, you know, the executives want or even maybe some of the diehard fans want? You know what I'm saying? Yeah. It almost just seems like when it comes to a competitive football league or a rival football league, it's just doomed to fail. Well, I think that's the way the NFL wants to hear you say that, right? Um, but, I, you know, I look, we, we've done a ton of episodes, uh, one in particular with our pal Jeff Perlman, 
when he came out with his USFL book a couple of years ago. Um, just a couple of years ago already. It's hard to believe. It seems like it was yesterday. But, um, you know, I, I, I believe that there is a there is a slot. There is a place on the calendar for spring football. I, I you know, I, I know that the, the, the snobs will say, oh, developmental or spring or all this kind of stuff. I, I, I think there is there's an absolute opportunity to play the game in some level of professionalism in the spring months, right? To satiate that, um, that football interest and to either develop or give additional opportunities to a, another layer of player that isn't necessarily at the top NFL level. And, you know, if it's somebody coming down from the big show or going up to the big show or just there for the joy of the game, you know, I, so what? There's a plenty of a, there's a, pl- a, a plethora of players uh, that would qualify to play in that kind of uh, kind of realm. I, I, I think there's an appetite for it. There's certainly a market for it. Um, I think that the demise of the AAF and the second XFL, there are different reasons for each of them. Um, but I don't think it's because there's not a market for football in the spring. That's not just training games for colleges. Yeah, I, I think there might be a market for it. but And this is something that you talked about with Scott Adamson when he was talking about uh, football in Birmingham. And he was talking about at the end of the conversation how whenever, you know, nowadays, if given the choice between watching like Major League Rugby and some off-brand football or what have you, he would rather watch Major League Rugby. And, you know, the young, young version of himself would – you know, laugh that off. But I, I do kind of wonder if like the overabundance of the NFL could sort of create this exhaustive effect for rival leagues um, in the spring, particularly because for me personally, you know, I, I think I'm as big of a football fan as they come. But really, by the time the Super Bowl is over, that's my chance to kind of de-plug from what's going on in the NFL. You know, I, I have a very passive interest in the draft. I don't really follow free agency. And just as a history fan, that's a time for me to watch a lot of the older games that were well before my time. So I, I kind of wonder if the over-exhaustion of having football four out of the seven days a week, plus college football, if you know, you're a person that's in a market that has really successful teams in both college and NFL are people just burned out by the time February comes about? No, I think that's a fair point, and I think that's actually healthy, right? But, um, you know, uh, the NFL certainly likes to keep the season uh, going all year round, too, right? They do own a television network, right? They do pump up this draft as sort of a, a mega event on its own. Um, you know, there's, there's all kinds of uh, of things that they try to sort of throw out there as sort of yeah, the European League uh, idea was certainly one of those things. I no, I, I agree. I as long as you don't sort of see it as a direct competitor or as uh, uh, even uh, skill wise or, or professionally, I just think that um, I, there is there is this sort of insatiable appetite for discretionary spending uh, of income, especially when the pandemic sort of wanes. Right to to um, go out and enjoy. I think you know some. Some would argue the NFL experience is, you know, like a lot of pro sports already out of reach for the average fan, right? So there's the adjunct to that market where you could actually see some level of the pro game. Um, 
I, you know, I, at the end of the day, it's also content, right? There's yeah. how many dozens of channels out there and now streaming services and stuff. They're just eager to get stuff, uh, stuff out there. Um, I, I, you know, I, I, it just, I get the sense that, um, that there's not going to be any shortage of people, uh, trying to continue to sort of push the envelope on, on that kind of stuff. I, I just, again, I come back to it as, you know, this isn't necessarily competing with the NFL. It's, it's, I, I think it's a great opportunity for rule changes, right. And, and, and experimentation and stuff, right. I mean, uh, that's what the minors are kind of for in lots of other sports. So, you know, I, I, I for example, I'm fascinated when the CFL came in the, to the United States for a couple of years in the nineties, right. You know, why not a wider field? Why not a longer end zone? Why not, you know, uh, uh backfield in motion and, and, uh, I, sure. I mean, three downs. Why not? I mean, you know, you could make the argument that the NFL could use a few adjustments itself. Right. And let's look, also look back to right in history. Right. Without the AFL, you don't have the field goal uh, posts at the back of the end zone. You don't have um, or the w- versions. Right. Yeah. All that kind of stuff. WFL, too, frankly, for that matter. Um, so it's it. And that's, by the way, that is absolutely part of the history of all kinds of pro sports, NBA basketball, uh, the NHL and hockey, uh, the NASL with soccer, you know, with, with the, the all, innovations that those are the things. And and I, look, we're still tinkering with the with the top tier pro leagues all the time. Right. There are new rule changes this year for the NFL. Uh, baseball's got the, you know, the the extra inning thing now with the guy on second. I mean, you know, the without the challenger leagues. Right. This stuff doesn't happen faster. I'm glad you brought up the rule change because I think one of the things that actually holds back rival leagues, and this is actually something that would get me to watch, is the fact that they try just to replicate the same style of football that the NFL has. You know, I think a lot of people look at what happened in 2001 with the XFL and think, oh, that was just a gimmick. No one's ever going to fully buy into it. Um, I know, what was his name? Michael McHugh, who was the commissioner for the United Football League. I think in your your episode with him, he had mentioned how he wanted it to be real football. Well, in my opinion, to keep something or to keep a game football, you know, to me, you need to have a line of scrimmage and the ball can't move past the line of scrimmage more than once, you know, whether you're throwing or kicking once it's passed, you can't go forward anymore. Like I would personally welcome a league that say, okay, we're going to play football. Like it's 1914 or whatever, you know, we're, we're not going to require you to, you know, be in place for one second after you shift, you could have multiple men in motion, only five or six men on the line of scrimmage. Like I would actually watch that. That's what I want to see. I mean, even the second iteration of the uh, XFL I watched because they had a double forward pass. You know, no one was building an, an entire offense around that, but I still just wanted to see because I'm not seeing it in the NFL. So I think a lot of leagues just completely brush off any rule changes as gimmicks when I think it could benefit them tremendously. Well, I, look, I think there's actually that you do this more basic uh, for football. And that's make the players two-way, you know, mm. bring rosters down, um, maybe limit the rules a little bit, right, To you know, so they don't sort of pass out. Right. Exhaustion, right? But yeah. – um, I mean, th- that feels more pure uh, and maybe more uh, athletic and more uh, intriguing, right? Because, um, you know, it becomes a little bit more endurance becomes a bit more of the uh, a factor, right? Like in soccer, where you only have a handful of substitutes for the you know entire game and, and sometimes you miscalculate or player gets thrown out and stuff and you have to scramble and, and you know, and the rest of the players have to kind of, I don't know, a two-way kind of thing, maybe with one or two specialists, like a like a kicker 
and maybe a quarterback, right? Uh, I, I don't know. that. It, from a an economic roster perspective, that would certainly be attractive. Yeah, uh, I think you could sell it as a pure version of the game. And I think it could be a nice little extra twist to or a differentiator from the quote-unquote classic NFL. And maybe, by the way, at the same time, identify some some new players and some new ideas and concepts as to how to, you know, improve the big show. I don't know. Well, yeah, definitely. I mean, and that was something that uh, in your episode that you did with Jim Foster of the Arena Football League, you know, that that's one of the things he looked at when he was working for the NFL and then went to the, uh, what was it, the Hall of Fame game. And he got to talk to like Nitrain Lane and kind of talk about the two-way players. And everybody agreed, you know, that's how it should be. I mean, my favorite part about football is all the different formations. Well, you know, you can have as many different formations as you want. You're still only allowed 11 people. So you can still replicate what you're doing if it fits the scheme. Um, but yeah, I, I would certainly be willing to see something like that, like a two-way you know, football league or um, something to that effect, I think could really prove beneficial. And I think a lot of it would appeal to even a lot of fan bases that are football fans, but not necessarily NFL fans. You know, I, there's a few different coaching podcasts I listen to, and a lot of them come from high school. And a lot of them just like the way the high school game and the college football game is played. You know, it might seem like a minimal difference, but, you know, with the hash marks being as far apart as they are in college and high school as opposed to NFL, you know, it does make a lot of difference. And you see like a lot of ingenuity at that level that I think you could really catch on with a, a league like that. Yeah, I mean, you know, this, we also have to recognize, too, that the NFL is the NFL, right? And the NFL is going to yeah. do what the NFL wants to do. And they are unique amongst all of the professional sports leagues, certainly in the United States, arguably on the world stage as well. Mm -hmm. uh, they're, you know, a really well-oiled machine and uh, in many respects propping up the television industry at the same time. Um, so, you know, until there's a something more seismic or more, um, I don't know, existential in terms of a threat. I, I don't know how much changes at that top yeah. level, um, right. you know, rules changes or whatever. I, I, it's got to be probably some uh, force from the outside that, that, that changes stuff. Maybe that's an economic downturn or, or I, I, maybe the pandemic, you know, sways a certain amount of people from not going to 70,000 seat you know palaces like the new sofi stadium and and allegiance state i don't know i it, it's something but uh maybe it's cte right maybe it's uh it's the player pensions thing maybe it's i i don't know i you know i it's i, I just to me it, it is um it's peak and don't get me wrong i i i grew up as a big football fan right big, big new york giants fan it was sort of almost sort of willed to me in my uh my bloodlines right between Yankees in the baseball world and, and the football giants and the, you know, growing up in Northern New Jersey, uh, that's, you know, that was just part of the deal. Um, but I, it's hard, it's harder to relate now. I don't know for maybe it's, maybe it's old age and just, you know, uh, 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 -ness, uh creeping in, but it also feels a little, you know, I, I'm not a gamer. Okay. I, I'm not a better, um, mm -hmm. I, uh, uh, you know, uh, I don't, to your point, I don't follow the draft, uh, super religiously. I don't do fantasies. So maybe that's the adjunct that, you know, if I was doing any of those things, that would probably get me more connected to the NFL. But I, you know, uh, to me, I, I'm not, it, 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 it's harder to, it doesn't resonate with me as much as it used to for whatever reasons. 
No, as like an older fan, do you miss back when football was played in, uh, on a base in baseball stadiums? Well, I, that's funny. I, um, now, I, you know, I, 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 let's be honest, right? I, I don't think that was optimal for anybody. It was, it wasn't op. I mean, yeah. uh, understanding the stadium issues at the time and, and how cost efficient that was and how to satiate two major sports. And I, I see why they were, but I, I can't imagine as a player that was approaching anything but fun. I, I, I don't know if anybody has any nostalgia for that. I, I mean, it's intriguing to me because I remember, right. I remember, you know, the, yeah. the, 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 the Oakland Raider games in particular, right. It's probably the, probably the right. largest infield. I mean, the first football game I ever went to was a jet game at Shea stadium. Um, and you know, it was more clouds of dust than there was, you know, uh, turf coming up from, from people's uh, shoes. So I, um, I don't know if I, I, I don't know how much romance there was to it. I think it's just, that just was, I'm certain that most of the players could not stand it. I know soccer players couldn't stand it for sure, but football I'm sure couldn't stand it either. And, I, and I'm sure the baseball and, and the other uses for the stadium didn't like it either because that gridiron, that's, you know, that gridiron's forever if you will. Uh, it doesn't, doesn't neatly go away. It's gotten better these days with artificial turf, but um, yeah, I, I, I think I for me, I just like, I, I see like that aesthetic in my head of just players in the sixties and seventies getting up with like dirt all over them, you know, especially if it's raining, then it just gets really muddy. And to me, it just feels like such a, a gridiron game, you know, even though it's played on a baseball field, I think it just complements the sports image very well. Well, it was certainly more rough and tumble back then. I think it was certainly more. Um, I think those players are. Um, uh, and by the way, this is this applies to just about every pro sport. Um, you know, are not only undervalued and under remembered, and and but but they need to be financially supported. And there's this is there's, there's absolutely right. stories about you know the pensions and and the uh, the concussion stuff and and the, the health issues and all that stuff. I. I honestly believe we have yet to really fully see the ramifications of all of that stuff, right? So I think we have to temper our um, our fond memories of growing up watching the game that you know the games that we love, and remember too that you know that a lot of the safety uh, uh, initiatives that have come since, um, and and frankly the, the 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 gigantic sums of money, right? Those two things were not part of the fifties, the sixties, the seventies, even the eighties, uh, for a lot of these players and, and, uh, and participants. And, um, you know, they're the ones who's interestingly, whose legacies and, and stories that we're fascinated by yet. They're also probably the ones that, um, may be suffering the most and or not being, uh, fully, uh, compensated for, uh, their issues, injuries, uh, and a lack of paycheck. And, and I, you know, I, there's a big sort of hole in my uh, my sensibility about about that and how that can be. I, there are there are a number of different sort of areas where that is being addressed, but um, I, I still see plenty of gaps. Yeah, Jim Otto couldn't even walk hardly whenever he retired. So yeah, there's definitely only time will tell how it all plays out. But to your point about, um, I guess people who aren't remembered as well or underserved. As a listener, I feel like the World Football League kind of holds a special place in your heart that I don't think other leagues do. And that's just kind of my feel as a listener. I'm curious if if it's fair for me to say, and if so, why is that the case? No, that's that's a good assessment. I think um I think 
the, in my mind, and I'm look, I'm I'm staring at uh, a copy of the Gary Davidson, uh, quote unquote, autobiography, calling "Breaking the Game Wide Open," uh, and uh, it was written in 1974, I think, and it's his sort of, I guess, at the pinnacle of his powers, if you will, if you call them that, uh, when he was, uh, you know, uh, uh, talking about how great uh, his life and uh, his story was by. Uh, being part of the ABA, the World Hockey Association, and this WFL thing. Um, so I, I think, though, the WFL, in my mind, uh, is probably the best, brightest, shining example of um, sheer folly uh, that uh, we've kind of really ever uh, explored on this show. And maybe it's almost like the... Um, in the pantheon of um, uh, of craziness uh, that, um, you know, in many cases, I, I would actually have thought there would have been more of these kind of debacles to have been on Earth. And certainly we've seen some. Um, but this one is, you know, was the ultimate sort of house of cards. Um, and it failed so spectacularly that um, it, it just, it, to me, is... is uh, it's it's like the biggest Klieg light you can have on the defunct sports stage. I, I and every team, uh, the the financial issues, uh, teams moving in the middle of the season, uh, you know, completely reconstituting a, a second season. Um, uh, the big name grabs right out of the pages of the ABA and the WHA playbook. Um, the, uh, the 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 collapse of the second season not even finishing the season. I mean, it just the, the different colored pants by position. I mean, the, the, the colors and the, and the, uh, of the teams, uh, the logos, uh, the way that the franchises were secured or unsecured, uh, as creditors might, uh, describe it. I, it just, to me, it's just, it is the ultimate circus. And I, to me, it's just, it's, I don't think there's any league that touches it. And it was only around for two years, for not even two years, for God's sakes. Yeah, whatever. Uh, Mark Speck, I think is his name. Yeah, Mark's you know, episodes have been probably amongst the most uh, uh, listened to. I, the Detroit Wheels episode, um, a couple of others we've talked about. That. But yes, there's, there's just, there's plenty more stories there. And that's the ultimate defunctness. Well, I think he sums it up best at the end of the episode. He's reading something from his book where he says um, they all one of the players said they kept telling us lies. And the only thing the only truthful thing they told us was that we were bankrupt. Yeah, I think it just it just feels like that. That kind of sums up the entire league's two year, year and a half existence perfectly. Yeah. And I again, we've had some really interesting sort of delves into that. Like we did a great episode, one of our earliest episodes with. um, guy named Howard Zuckerman, who was a producer for the old TVS television network, which, as your listeners may know, was um, the uh, it's an independent television network it was created by Eddie Einhorn. Uh, but Howard Zuckerman was like he was like the director, producer. He was telling us stories about how they, they would park their trucks like in the middle of the country and find out which team was still around to know which game to go to the next week. I mean, that was that nuts. And that's, that feels like a movie to me. That feels like a mini series. That feels like a, 
a streaming couple of uh, episodes. I, it just seems like there's so much there. And Gary Davidson, God bless, is still around from what I understand. Uh, we've been trying to figure out a way to get to him. Uh, we did, however, sort of tangentially get to, I think, the other guy who's on the Mount Rushmore, um, Dennis Murphy, right, who was part of the ABA uh, story, the WHA story for sure. Uh, th- these are, you know, these are guys who, you know, kind of went to the well and, uh, you know, thought that their their fame and fortune would come by uh, creating these new leagues and, um, you know, getting franchises and, uh, you know, filling the blanks uh, maybe later on as the as time went on. And uh, some many cases, they uh, they ran out of crayons for the coloring books. Do you have any memories watching the WFL when you were growing up? Very vaguely. Uh, I remember um, I do remember that they um, had uh, I remember Merle Harmon, of course, he was the voice of TVS generally. Uh, I remember um, uh, they had a third person in the booth each game from the world of Hollywood or television. That guy, I know Burt Reynolds was on once. George Plimpton was on uh, as the third person once. Uh, they had a whole bunch of other people and stuff. I, I And I vaguely remember trying to find when the game was going to be on. Now, I grew up in New York, so it was on Channel 5 there, to, uh, the old, uh, now Fox station, but the old WNEW television, um, Metro Media, I guess at the time. Um, but, you know, it, what, this TVS network, right, d- doesn't mean that all uh, every station cleared the game live back in the day. Same with the bowl games that TVS did. And Mislu was another one. Um, but so I remember, I remember the, uh, I remember looking at the TV guide to see which teams were playing and occasionally mm-hmm. tuning in. Um, to me, it was fascinating because it's like, what is this thing? Now, why do you think that some defunct leagues are continue to live on, like the WFL or like the USFL? Um, either through internet fan pages or, you know, mass market memorabilia. And why do you think others are just kind of completely lost to history, like the American Football Association or uh, the Continental Football League? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, I think memorabilia has a lot to do with it. Um, And the realities of uh, trading cards and, um, and eBay and, Maybe coming back in, in the realm of NFTs, you know, where they're uh, truly digitally authenticated and, and um, uh, fraud free, so to speak. Um, I, I think some of it has to do with that. I think that's maybe why baseball has lasted uh, so long in terms of like being the ultimate sort of his, history project. Um, because I think baseball has been was the earliest sport really in this country and was merchandised probably earlier than most of the professional sports today. Um, and, uh, I, it just feels to me like there is, it's probably the sort of the, uh, quintessential portal, I guess, uh, to people's memories of those sports and leagues, right? Is that program, that, that ticket stub, that, um, that pennant, that, uh, signed, you know, the eight by 10 glossy, I don't know. Um, I think it also, uh, there's also a bit of, uh, media involved, meaning if it was sort of a, you know, a 1960s onward kind of league situation, there's probably a fair chance, especially as as the years roll on, that there would have been either radio slash audio broadcasts or television now video broadcasts. Uh, and that just ensures stuff going on. I mean, 
I, you know, YouTube, right? Let's talk about YouTube for a second. Um, it's God's gift to any sports fan. I, a lot of other genres too, for that matter. But, um, you know, th- and there's more being made every day, but th- just the ability to find those clips of the WFL or to see that there was, uh, you know, what the AFL actually looked like in full color, aside from the occasional documentary on Showtime or something. Um, it's all there, right? And 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 here's the kicker, right? All the stuff that's come since literally gets put up there forever, right? So every single game highlights as well as full actual games of the AAF, right? In its one glorious season will be forever etched in, in the annals of, of digital media, right? So it's never going away. So there's going to be people who go back and go, holy crap, this thing existed. I mean, I, it's almost like discovering old television shows. Now that all these streaming services are out and they, they're trying to figure out mine, all this stuff for, for library and stuff. Like I'm a huge David Letterman fan from the eighties and nineties. Right. So there's this guy named Don, um, Don Geller, who literally it's just like his life's work. He's like 70 years old now. He literally has every episode from all the David Letterman shows digitized and he curates all kinds of stuff and they all live on YouTube, right? No, there's no TV network with the rights to David Letterman show anymore, but it's there. It's fascinating. And it allows me, I can go back at any time and I can turn it on and pour it over to the TV set. And just like you, uh, we can watch old games if we want to, right? There's these guys uh, who were trying to get on the show. They're still reluctant. I think they want to get this story up and running called the dead football league or the dead football network. You're probably aware of them, right? Yeah, and they absolutely. Literally, they literally stream games from all these forgotten leagues and stuff. Mm-hmm. And literally, you, it's like tuning into a kaleidoscope of, of football history. It's if you're into that stuff, it's fantastic. It's great. I just I find it endlessly fascinating. So I, I think media has something to do with it. I think nostalgia and I think uh, memorabilia has something to do with it. Um, and look, this, the Continental Football League is certainly in a. We want to get into some of those stories. Um, you know, regional. Uh, how many programs, how many fans, not many, right? National bowling league, very challenging to find stuff about that. Thank God yeah. we found the good doctor with his, uh, his, his, uh, almost thesis, uh, on the, on this, on, on the story, but it's there. And here's the kicker. And this is the thing I love about this genre, um, football and otherwise, I, I'm, I'm constantly amazed, uh, not only other people who somehow latch onto this topic and, and find it similarly interesting. But that there's always a new discovery to be found, either something in the microfiche or a piece of something that came out in a video or somebody died and their attic or their basement had a box of something that nobody's ever seen before. And that to me is like, it's like a treasure hunt. I, I just, I live for that kind of stuff. That's how sad my life has become. But that, that's fascinating. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm, I'm not, I, I used to be a collector. I don't collect any of that stuff anymore. I just, I kind of got over all that. But I, I think, that, that to me is always, there are always going to be new discoveries about what used to be. I'm, I'm, I'm certain of that. And that to me just, you know, uh, keeps me enthusiastic about, I don't know, continuing to do this silly little show every week. Yeah, I don't think it's sad at all. I mean, I, I'm in the same camp as you where YouTube for me, I use YouTube more than anything. I use YouTube more than cable, more than Netflix, Prime. I mean, that to me has just absolutely been the best resource that I could ever possibly imagine. I watch 
so many old games you know there's a lot of subscribers i go to that have like long form highlights like half hour long from vintage games you know i can watch a lot of international football games that way it really is has been a saving for me like as a researcher and as a fan i mean i just think it's incredible and i think a lot of that kind of goes to you know the, the nostalgia effect as well i mean I'm 26 years old, so a lot of what I'm watching happened way before my time. But even if I'm watching a game from like 2008, I could be like, oh, man, I forgot about him. You know, he was a good player, wasn't a Hall of Famer or anything like that. But you still get like that warm feeling watching games on tape, that grainy image. You know, you really kind of transport yourself into a world that you weren't a part of, but it still feels familiar, you know? I, I will say there is one thing that I've, I've learned from all, <clears throat> all of this, football specifically, but also all the sports and all the things that we've discussed um, is that there's absolutely trends that come and go. And um, especially, you know, amongst younger sports fans who are who sort of latch onto the show or have their comments and stuff and their, their uh, opinions. Um, I think a lot of them, once they sort of get into a couple of our episodes, they sort of recognize, Hey, you know what? There's not a whole lot that's new under the sun. A lot of these ideas right. A lot of these things, a whole bunch of things, you know, really are, are, you know, go back to some of the earliest days. I mean, uh, you know, the idea of single entity uh, versus a franchise, right? That, that that's I, I, the more we've sort of unearthed that that goes all the way back to debates back in the late 1890s around baseball and how that should look. Um, it, it just it's fascinating to me to see the same uh, arcs of labor strife, uh, economics. Uh, 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 how fans are or aren't part of uh, of the mix, um, owners and their grandiosities, uh, their, their their beliefs in, in big business and, and what could what could be. Um, I, it's just fascinating to watch these similar themes play over and over again. And it's that old proverb, right? Those who ignore history are you know largely burdened with having to repeat it, and um, uh, that. That seems to play out uh, in our little um, four-year exploration thus far. Yeah, I agree 100%. And, and in your uh, – within the shows that you've done so far, is there one football team that you have really been captivated by, either a team that you still think about to this day after having a guest on or even just doing your own research, you just really grew to have a passion for the story that was being told? Hmm. Um, yeah, I guess I'm going to go with the New York Titans. Mm, okay. Um, and why? Uh, certainly, well, it was years before I was born. Um, but it's a New York team, um, that I kind of didn't really know about. And obviously they live on in the Jets, but I don't think any, I think there's at least two generations of fans that don't even know that, that the New York Jets, you know, before, they moved to Shea Stadium and, you know, ultimately by the end of the decade, you know, proved that the AFL was not only worthy to compete with the NFL, but could actually beat the the legacy teams in the NFL with Joe Namath and, and all. Um, I just fascinated to go back over time, over the years, and learn that there was this franchise that was placed in a decrepit, you know, fallen apart polo grounds that you know, had to be a New York team in the AFL, right? Because you can't start a league without being in the biggest media market in the country. And that that team was, 
I want to say flimsily created, but it certainly was not the one with the most amount of money behind it. And, um, you know, everything from the logo and the colors and, but it seems like it's completely been steamrolled. And we've seen this, right? We see this a lot with uh, all kinds of big pro leagues who don't want to remember or recall uh, teams uh, of the past or where teams were previously located. Uh, the histories of those teams, which, you know, historians and, and super fans kind of care about, but, you know, leagues and uh, uh, the, the money behind them don't necessarily want to. Um, to me, that's like an unearthed, like, part of the story that um, any Jets fan, frankly, should know about. Because it's all, without the Titans, there ain't no Jets, right? Um, now, that said, since 1969, most people would care less about there ain't no Jets, right? Because they haven't really done much. But I, 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 right. I mean, but my point is, to me, so that's, I think that that is the team that kind of sticks out in my mind, Dan, Don Maynard, and and I, there's all this. To me, that's a fascinating two and a half, almost three years. And it's also, by the way, part of the story of New York at the time, right? So Robert Moses, uh, the the reconstruction of the of the city to be much more accommodating to to cars, the 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 advent of Shea Stadium, right? Why did that come come to play? Because two baseball teams left in 1957, right? And they wanted to put a new baseball team in there and this continental league, which we've also explored as part of that too. Right. So without that, you don't have, Hey, here's a new stadium being built. We could also put a football team in there. So it, it, it's weird, but it gets into all kinds of different layers of history. And, you know, um, you could be, I guess, forgiven for not knowing that from 1960 to 1963, there was an NF, excuse me, a, an AFL football franchise known as the New York Titans. Um, and that to me is a really good example of the kind of stuff we love to obsess about. Yeah, I, I haven't listened to that episode, but I did listen to the one about the Jets. Um, I can't remember what the author's name was, but he wrote a book about the Jets outside of Namath. Um, yeah, Bob Letterer. Yeah, it was a great yeah. episode. Yeah, I, I, I thought that was a really good episode because, I mean, that's a that's a team that I don't think a lot of people really think about. I mean, obviously they're going to live in, in, you know, in the – people's memories forever because of the upset of Super Bowl three, but it's fascinating when you watch that actual Super Bowl and you kind of see how everybody really had to pull their own weight. I mean, Joe didn't really have the best game he's ever played of his life. You know, Matt Snell had to carry the rock a good amount, Riggins and uh, Don Maynard. I mean, I think it was a really good approach to uh, a story I feel like has been told often but he really approached it from a unique angle. So I really enjoyed that episode too. Well, thanks. I, I, um, uh, we obviously focus on sort of incarnations, I guess, and and the jets obviously still exist today, but the AFL version of the jets don't. Right. And that to me was almost that's, that's obviously the exclamation point of their AFL lives was, was that winning that championship. Right. And many would argue it's never been the same since, but, um, to me, that's all part of the tableau. And and look, as as you know, uh, and I appreciate all of your um, uh, in depth listening because you've had some great questions, and it shows that you've actually listened. Which you know reminds me to uh, ask yourself to have your uh, your health, your mental health checked because uh, you know there are other things in life than listening to every single one of our two hundred and some odd episodes. But um, I still appreciate it. I the um, it is um, uh, not only is it, is it fascinating to me. I'm just um, I'm just amazed at just how much there's uh, still out there uh, to unearth and um, and how many other people out there find it to be similarly interesting. Um, I, um, you know, I 
I just wonder, <laughs> I wonder what's ahead. I mean, there's so many different stories that, that are percolating. You may, you may know that if I, in my, my social media feeds, I'll, I'll occasionally post something that I call future episode watch. Mm-hmm. Right. So, and I, I said it earlier in the, in our conversation, I mean, this is the kind of the gift that keeps on giving, right? It's like, it's like the old Jay Leno commercial with Doritos, you know, we, if you, 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 you finish, well, don't worry, we'll make more. Um, you know, the Oakland A's might be the next ones, right? So right, yeah. stay tuned, right? Um, so I, it, as it, the, it's weird, but this storyline, this niche is ironically timely as today's headlines. And that's, you know, we, we love that stuff. And that's kind of why we keep doing it. And until we're probably told otherwise. <laughs> Well, yeah, I mean, when and speaking of time, like with the A's possibly relocating, I mean, personally, I also love your Baltimore episodes because I didn't really realize because um, I, I have I know you had Jack Gilden on your show and I he was actually one of the first people I interviewed for my show, too. And I was really shocked, I guess, in a way to find out how much of an inferiority complex that Baltimore had and really like how the Colts were as significant to the citizens of Baltimore as like a high school team would be in rural Texas. So like, and whenever I've noticed that when you have a, an episode about Baltimore, you're trying to kind of search for an answer on where does their legacy exist, right? Because, you know, Indianapolis isn't really going to give much consideration to what happened in Baltimore. You know, they have created their own history and Baltimore has moved on with the Ravens. And then you go in the stallions and the stars. It's like, there, there's a lot of uh, kind of, I don't know. Uh, how do I say kind of like ghost in a way. And I know that was another person that you had on the show who made that documentary about the ghost of 33rd street. Yeah. I mean, there's, we kind of, a lot of times when there are teams that um, either don't exist, literally they came to a cul-de-sac and just, just died an ugly death. Um, Or they've gone on to other incarnations. Um, I just, I'm always interested for i don't know for completism to find or to understand or ask and maybe and a lot of times there actually isn't an answer where do these histories officially live Mm -hmm. and you know for leagues and teams that are gone completely um that can be an open-ended question but you know when you talk about say the minnesota north stars of the nhl well, that's a team that kind of that broke into different parts and went into different places. And then when a team comes back after having been abandoned as a market, in the case of Minneapolis, St. Paul, you know, do they get the opportunity to kind of rekindle that and bring that back in since it is a return of NHL hockey to that market? Um, I think I think the NFL, is, it's been a little it's a little harder. But I mean, I think the Raiders thing is going to be interesting right over time. Right. I mean, I, I just. <laughs> I literally yesterday just saw you probably did too this this new artist's rendering of this new end zone party thing that they're going to have at at Allegiant Stadium for the Raiders. It's literally like you know bar service and it's like it's like it's almost like going to a strip club but in the end zone. Maybe maybe sans the the the, the scantily clad uh, lady. I don't know. Maybe maybe that's part of it. But you, you look Vegas. at the, you, it's Vegas, baby. Sure, you look, but you look at the renderings. It's like, oh, do we really need a Tau nightclub, right, right in yeah. the end zone? I mean, I, okay, so I'll put that aside. But you know, I, if I'm an Oakland fan, I mean, from like the first ver, the first version, the AFL version, right, and even the NFL version, 
before they moved to LA and then back to Oakland. I'm talking about the first real original Oakland, you know, lineage from AFL into NFL and, and, and the true, you know, Al Davis years and the stickum and all that stuff. Right. And I, and I look at what these games are going to look like on television and in person in Las Vegas. I don't know. I, 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 to me, there's a break there. I, I'm, I'm not saying I enjoyed the Raiders and the way that they bent the rules a lot, you know, and, and played their sort of brand of football, but it was a brand, right? It was, yeah. you knew what you're getting, right? It was black and blue, literally, or black and gray in this case, but I, I don't know. It just feels hollow to me. I, you know, so to me, where does that, I'm going to say that. So where does that Oakland Raiders legacy live? Uh, officially, I guess it's going to be in Las Vegas. That's where the Raiders live now. Okay. And I guess that's the the, the politically correct uh, answer to that question. But if I'm a an abandoned Oakland Raider fan and I can't – and I grew up, you know, not not rooting for the 49ers nor ever will, right. I don't know. My allegiances are now kind of probably, you know, up for grabs. Uh, maybe, maybe I don't even come back to the game anymore. Maybe I don't care anymore. Maybe I, maybe I just move on with my life. Maybe, maybe there's another league that comes in and says, hey, we're going to play in Oakland because Oakland was an abandoned market, right? And we've seen this before, too. So does Birmingham. So does Memphis. So do, I mean, the, all these – there's a lot of these cities that, you know, uh, are still – have great football fans, but, you know, somehow have been left behind. Um, there's an example. I, you know, and God bless the Raiders. I mean, I, you know, I take the payday, too, I guess, but – I don't know. It doesn't seem like the the Raiders that got us to where we are today. Well, they returned to Oakland once. I'm not going to rule out that it could happen again down the road. Well, you're you're more of an optimist. I I, I don't. I think it's you know. I, I, I'm not. I'm I'm not saying I I think it's going to happen. But yeah, I guess in today's world, you can never rule it out. I mean, Oakland, yeah. I think, is one of those teams, too, that will, like how we talked about how some teams just live on. Like, o- Oakland, I feel like, even though they're in Vegas, when I hear the Raiders, I still immediately think of Oakland. Like, Vegas is separate from the Raiders as of right now, in my mind. Unless they were to have some real success over the next few years or so, I'm I'm still going to associate the Raiders with Oakland. Yeah, I mean, and, and, you know, frankly, this is where the chief marketing officer comes into play, because you right. can utilize it, right? And, and arguably say, hey, we're going to be, we're going to, we're going to reach out to all of the fans from the East Bay eastward, shall we say, to Las Vegas. And we're going to claim all of that geography for ourselves. Let the, you know, let the northern uh, wine country and the Bay and then the Silicon Valley, let them have the 49ers, right? But the rest of it and beyond, and, you know, maybe there's got to be some ways to sort of make it happen. I, but I, it's still, I still, it still rings hollow to me. And look, let's be honest, too, right? We, we all know what's going on with the A's right now. You know, it's it's gamesmanship, right? It's you got to do what you got to do to get, you know, communities and the tax dollars and the tax yeah. breaks and all that kind of stuff. And and I think that's actually a, even a bigger source of ill for what uh, for what pro sports looks like. I mean, it's it's real estate, right? You look at what look at what the Braves are doing. I'm going to get off the football topic, but you look at what the yeah. Braves have done. Right in Atlanta, right. You you live in the area, right? I I'm curious to hear your thoughts, but I, I I'll start I'll start with mine. <laughs> you know, um, I don't. You know, I get it, right? It, they, you create a new ballpark for yourself in a well-off suburb, um, and you you build it as part of a 
larger real estate complex uh, that gives you other revenue streams and uh, more control, I guess, over your financial future. But okay, but take that, put that aside, and then say, okay, baseball, the Braves, a team that's lived probably one of the longest lineages of, of all of baseball, all of sports in the United States, and they're playing in this stadium that's literally like part of an office park. Um, and I haven't been there, but I'm just, it's my understanding and my reading and what I've seen on television. I don't know. That feels a little hollow to me. Um, but then again, maybe I'm just being an old curmudgeon. What do you think? I mean, I, to me, that's what I fear is starting to, is the next phase of pro sports. And, and I, I don't know, it just feels more like it's real estate development in, instead of sport. I personally am okay with it because I believe the surrounding area really is state of the art. And I haven't been to too many other baseball stadiums, but you have to sell more than just the game at this point, right? Like you really have to try to reach fans who maybe aren't even fans of the sport. Like personally, I've been to the – they call it the battery. And I've been there – several times, but I've only gone to a few Braves games because, you know, for someone like me, I enjoy the atmosphere there. I enjoy the bars, the restaurants, the amenities that it provides. I can see where some people maybe like the more traditional avenue of a ballpark. Um, But compared to where the Braves were playing at, I think it was Turner Field. I mean, it's an area that I think they could have tried to spruce up, but they really didn't for a while. And I think oftentimes you'll see what happens is a lot of these teams move. And I think you, you can comment and attest to this because the, the, the stadium commission or whoever oversees it just doesn't take care of it or update it to a certain point. You know, there's always going to be a better offer out there, but I think to a certain point, if the current tenants aren't going to try to keep you there, then it only makes sense to, look elsewhere no i and i understand that argument uh, trust me and I, the economics of it and, and look uh, the the casual fan uh, i get that too i get the um you know, i just but i you know i i remember this going to the first time the city field in in new york for the, mm-hmm. the first couple of mets games in the new, new place um it's great i by the way i think it's better than yankee stadium which is more like a mausoleum than anything else but um uh, it feels like it's an amusement park you know yeah. uh, and, and I, don't get me wrong. You want to have fun at the ballpark, no doubt, right? Um, but when the game feels like it's starting to become more of a sideshow versus the main event, that's when right. I start. And again, I'm not naive to the idea of, of how business runs in pro sports. Um, but um, I just fear every time the game becomes more the background, like I think with betting, I think betting is. Um, yeah. An interesting development, right? Um, and, you know, look, gee, what could go wrong, right? The sanctity yeah. of the sport, the competitiveness, right? I mean, the Astros with the, the – I, I, what could go wrong? Seriously, what could go wrong with betting and sports, right? After years and years and years and years of pushing back on that. Hello, Pete Rhodes, right? Yeah. You don't think that something's not going to happen there? I really – I mean, and, Did- and that's, that's when it's too late. When, when that sanctity – of the competition gets somehow breached. I we're all in big danger then. I, I don't know. If, I don't know if sports ever recovers from something like that. Did you ever read the book um, interference by Dan Moldea? I have not. 
Yeah, he, he was a journalist that predominantly he reports on organized crime. I don't know if he's still writing, but he, he wrote a book, I think, in the late 80s, maybe it was the early 90s, as, essentially about the relationship between various NFL owners and gamblers and kind of the relationship between some players and bookies that they knew and about placing bets. It kind of it kind of cuts deeper than the uh, like Alex Karras, Paul Horning suspension. And it's an interesting book to kind of see, I guess, the relationship. I mean, there, there's no finite evidence that any game was ever fixed or at any points were shaved aside from, well, I, I don't know if that wasn't actually successful. There was an attempt in the 40s in the 1946 championship game. But yeah, stuff like that just definitely kind of show and, and also details sort of like the NFL securities department um, attempts to thwart these efforts. But it does actually show how there is money, unsavory money and unsavory personalities that do flock to sports betting in that sense. And today it seems like there's so much money at stake with the athletes themselves that maybe it's going to be hard to persuade them or compromise them. But yeah, it, it definitely does feel like there could be an unsavory element that can creep into there. Yeah. I mean, I, I just, I, I just can't imagine it's, I, I, look, I, it's it's very interesting, right? I mean, six years ago, seven years ago, this wasn't even a conversation, right? It wasn't even right. yeah. a possibility. I mean, Las Vegas being the home of a an actual pro sports franchise in a, in a top tier league um, was un, un, unthinkable, um, but it exists today. I mean, uh, cannabis, right? You know, is is uh, is essentially legalized now, not the federal level, but essentially almost everything, but right. Mm-hmm. Uh, so there are a lot of things that, you know, it just the times move on and, and times evolve. But I, again, I just, I, I keep wondering about the sport. I look, I, I live in Chicago now, uh, my wife and um, her family, uh, you know, I married into this cub, cub fandom thing, which is, is really more of an illness than it is anything else. Uh, but I tolerate it because, um, you know, um, that's what good husbands do. Uh, but, you know, you, you see Wrigley Field, right? It's the, you know, it's the, the friendly confines, but you know, it's, it's now one big real estate project, right? It's all about the parks and the buildings around it and the hotel now. And, um, and again, I'm not trying to, I'm not trying to sort of be nostalgic for the old days. I, hell, I wasn't even here, you know, uh, until 2000. Right. But, but mm-hmm. I do understand the I, I do understand the history. Uh, I do understand, you know, that the average fan is being priced out of games. Uh, and I understand that it's, you walk in now to, into Wrigleyville, it's become more like a theme park. And, you know, if that's what it takes to keep fans and casual fans interested in coming and paying for the games and stuff, it's great. But I, you know, I go to games when I go to games or maybe I'll go back again soon. Um, you know, it feels to me more about, you know, having a party and, and, you know, you could care less about the game and I, you know, I don't know, there, there's a game going on here and I, I, you know, you're, you're entitled to do what you want to do while you're at the game. But um, I don't know, the sport is like kind of there and I hate to see anything you know, that kind of makes the, um, makes the sport itself kind of suffer. And, you know, I, if look, football's probably got the biggest to lose, right? Because they've got the most money sort of at stake. And uh, I worry about that too. Yeah. Well, I, I think that's kind of an, that's one argument that a lot of people make when they flock to college football. I mean, living in Atlanta, I'm surrounded by a lot more college football fans, you know, whether it's Alabama, Auburn, UGA, obviously, but people just say, you know, they love the atmosphere of college football because it's the game. You know, obviously, when you go to 
I mean, the Falcon Stadium, Mercedes-Benz is state-of-the-art, but I'm telling you, Tim, when I was there, I went to a game, I think well, it had to be two years ago because last year there was no one there, but they were playing the Rams, and I'm telling you, man, like it was a great stadium, but the team just was obviously in a bad season, and a buddy of mine, we got nosebleeds, but we could go down to the next deck without any trouble. So it's like, you know, you have this whole – you have this whole experience that is drawing people away from the actual seats and just persuading them or motivating them just to walk around to see the state of the art stadium and all the amenities that it could provide. Whereas like with a college game, you go to UGA in Athens, you're in the seat with God, 80 other thousand people. Yeah. And you got to pay attention to the game. <laughs> yeah, precisely. Well, every, every shouting in your ear, you had to see what the excitement's about. I mean, I've I've been to Pittsburgh a couple times for a game, and Heinz Field. I I never got to see Three River Stadium, but you know, Heinz Field I think has done a good job of still making the stadium uh, contemporary while also making keeping the focus on the actual game. I mean, in the surrounding area, they have some really cool spots, but it's nothing that's going to draw you away from the the actual on field play. Yeah, I think it's gonna be really interesting to see um, what the stadium and in person experience evolves to. Mm-hmm. Uh, as the next number of months and years play out in a post-pandemic world. And look, I, you know, I, I I'm not sure that we'll ever not, I, I'm not sure we're past other pandemics and other sort of uh, issues and stuff too. I, to think that it just sort of reflexively goes back to what it used to be. I think maybe in the short term, it might, because it's just people been, you know, they haven't been to a game in a couple of years and they really just, they're dying to go. And, but I, I think over time though, I'm I'm not sure that the dynamic is going to be the same. And, and it'll be interesting to see if, if these, especially these newest constructed um, facilities uh, are able to sort of maximize all those revenues that uh, were kind of comprised back when the pandemic wasn't even a thing yet. So I, right. I don't know. I, I just think the live fan experience is going to change. And I'm not sure anybody really fully knows how it's going to evolve over time. I just simply fill in the stadiums back up because there's some level of herd immunity. I don't know. I psychically, I'm not sure everybody's really prepared to do that anymore. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Only time will tell. Um, I have just one more football question that I'm curious to get your opinion on, and then we'll wrap this up. So you've had a lot of conversations about um, defunct leagues and in markets that, never have had an NFL franchise kind of going back to like the, uh, the topic of like Oakland and what used to be Vegas in in talking to various guests and authors that you have spoken with. Do you find like one consistent theme or maybe not one consistent theme, but consistent themes across these um, off-brand football teams in cities like Orlando, um, Birmingham, San Antonio and Sacramento and so on and so forth that kind of draws people in only for it to fail after a few years like do you do you notice like consistent theme between these cities or do you think each market is kind of unique and can't be really clustered together um i think there are two elements um one is that there's a reason why uh these markets uh tend to uh make the initial short lists when new leagues are are being thought of because they do have some level uh, of either football history, heritage, or uh, at the collegiate level, um, uh, some affinity, right? There's 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 a proven base of fans uh, for quote unquote football, 
Mm-hmm. Um, and I think all those markets and then some uh, tend to prove that. I think the other, though, issue um, that comes into play, and we've sort of explored this a little bit on some of our other episodes, is uh, let's call them smaller markets. Not that there's anything wrong with that, uh, but there's a um, a longstanding unwritten sort of understanding uh, that having a professional sports team, especially that of the quote unquote big four, you can maybe argue this, you know, a few more sort of uh, wrinkles to that sort of law or that rule uh, will connote major league status to said city. Right. So our conversations around the Indiana Pacers, so the ABA, very much rooted uh, into that. I think um, when Lamar Hunt uh, moved the Dallas Texans of the AFL to Kansas City uh, to become the Chiefs, although, as listeners may remember, they were actually going to be called the Kansas City Texans, if you can believe that. Mm-hmm. Um, luckily, uh, Lamar was talked out of it. I, I find that hard to believe, but but Michael McCambridge swears that that's a true story. So I, I he's the, he's the master of that story. I'm not going to I'm not going to fight him. Um, but I, I do think that um, uh, there is a is always a desire of a of a city. I see it now. We had our conversation with Dan Issel uh, about a year ago about the ABA, and uh, you know he's he's trying to get Louisville to get the next NBA franchise, right? Um, so I, I I you know I think there is something inherent in pride, uh, civic spirit. Uh, and a belief that at least a major league pro team of some sort uh, is uh, equal to uh, major league status uh, as a city. And I think right. that drives, you know, a lot of interest in and around that kind of stuff. So, you know, uh, and it sometimes it takes a while. I, we had a great conversation with um, Upton Bell. I highly recommend that episode to everybody. Um, Upton Bell is the son of Burt Bell, the uh, one of the most influential uh, NFL uh, commissioners uh, uh, in the entire history of the league. Uh, and, and you know, he was a guy who bought a WFL franchise, the New York Stars, which were barely perceptible on the New York sports media landscape, playing at Downing Stadium and, and on, on Randall's Island and just, you know, in, in almost uh, under the cloak of darkness. Uh, and moved it to Charlotte. Now, Charlotte at that time in the 19, 1974, um, you know, was not the sort of, you know, major league market it's become. But that to me, that's that's fun to watch stuff, right? Because Sacramento's really coming to its own. The Kings moving their NBA and maybe getting an MLS frame. I mean, there's there's a lot of Louisville, I think, is is absolutely one of those cities sort of on the cusp. They're one pro franchise away from, uh, you know, I think Salt Lake is really coming. And there's a lot of sort of mid-sized cities that just, you know, we'll see if how look at Nashville um over the last number of years, right? So um to me those markets have always been sort of on the cusp and it, it wouldn't surprise me if whether it's another football league of some sort or some other sport that kind of puts a Birmingham uh over the top. Uh it certainly happened to Orlando. Uh, Memphis is certainly coming along, all these cities, right? Um, and I think you'll see more of them uh, in to come. And again, look, who thought Las Vegas would ever get to that level, uh, aside from being a destination? Look at it now. It's got two, maybe going on three, top-tier right. uh, sports franchises. Yes, or, or Orlando for me is a tough one, man, because you have three teams in Florida already, and you also have, well, I guess maybe 
you would never get a franchise in the NFL that would move there. But I guess I could see another competing league that could draw an audience in Central Florida. It just kind of feels like you had the Jacksonville Jaguars in North Florida. They capture the Northern audience, Miami and South and Tampa Bay in this sort of central location. But I guess honestly, I cannot cannot imagine Jacksonville staying in Jacksonville. I, I could easily see them moving to Orlando and regionalizing that franchise and doubling yeah. down and, and, and doubling their money in the process. I think it's it's absolutely achievable. No disrespect to Jacksonville, but Jacksonville's a you know, I, I remember the Jacksonville team in of the North American Soccer League uh, the episode this week uh, for the former New England team in. I mean Jacksonville is, is I, I've been to Jacksonville. I went to the Super Bowl there. It was fantastic. It's it's a it's, it's a lovely city. They got some great food there. I love the layout of the of the bay there and stuff. Um but you know, there's Howard. You know, they're already hemming and hawing, and and the stadium is not, you know, any anything uh, that's going to last on a, on a longer period of time and stuff. And I, you know, Orlando's been sitting there waiting, and I, it wouldn't surprise me, and I think it might be a win win for everybody. Um, so it would not surprise me if Orlando steps up to the NFL plate and becomes the natural, at least, uh, uh, rival, to, much more natural rival to to Tampa um, and, uh, you know, by extension, you know, maybe Miami, but I, I think just that I five rivalry ideas makes a ton of sense. Yeah. I mean, it, it does always feel like Jacksonville is kind of the franchise that everybody thinks will be re- relocated at some point. I mean, for a while they've always thought London, but I think that's a lot more difficult than people want to admit. Yeah. yeah I, you know, I, and again, I just, I'm just looking at the tea leaves and again, it's all part of the game of stadiums and, gamesmanship and brinksmanship and stuff right, yeah. and look it's also a bigger market let's be honest it's a bigger television market yeah. and um i'm not sure frankly how the nfl carves up orlando but i think you it, it's like the it's like what we talked about with the raiders right it, it, the marketing opportunity for the raiders now i mean las vegas by comparison to oakland uh, and the san francisco oakland uh, metropolitan area it's, it's night and day in terms of market size right las vegas is not nearly as large you can fit four almost five las vegases in terms of population uh, into the television market that is the bay area right i think the same logic applies uh for um for jacksonville and orlando and if you can somehow harmonize those markets in some respect may, maybe you play a game in jacksonville right not like yeah. the Packers did in, in milwaukee for years you know they play a, ga- a game or two in milwaukee county stadium um I, regionality I think I think can be the the win win there, um, and and keep everybody somewhat happy. Yeah, absolutely. I, yeah, I agree. Do you want to give the audience a little bit of a preview of what they can um, expect from good seats still available? Oh, you mean if, if they haven't fallen asleep already? Of course. Uh, <laughs> uh, the this audience, this audience loves it. <laughs> I don't know. I appreciate your uh, your listeners tolerating my uh, my uh, nutso answers, and uh, I I do appreciate your your, your listening and and your. Great questions. I, I'm just I'm I'm shocked that you would have listened to all these uh, so intently. I, I'm I'm honored and um, uh, overwhelmed. Um, it's good seats still available. Obviously, wherever good podcasts are found, or even frankly, where where crappy ones are found, we're there too. Uh, just subscribe and rate right them. next to this one. Oh come on! And the uh, <laughs> and the uh, the the website uh, for just the uninitiated. We have all of our episodes there, and just it's very basic, but. Well, someday when we have you know more time on our hands, uh, augment it. Uh, it's good seats still available dot com, all one word, 
uh, all the social links, all that stuff. Follow us on Twitter, Good Seat Still, and blah, blah, blah. But um, we appreciate uh, any new listeners. And by the way, the library keeps building, right? So there's no um, – you're not missing anything if you haven't been following us for four years uh, like Aaron has. Um, well, actually, he's only been a year and a half, right? But th- there's a library there, and chances are there's probably at least the beginnings of a topic you're probably interested in. Uh, and uh, if we haven't gotten to yours yet, uh, hang tight, send us an email, and uh, we'll hopefully get to yours sooner rather than later. You mentioned this before. Do you plan on doing a live episode at some point, I think I heard you say? Yeah, I, I certainly want to do all that stuff, right? So um, I want to do some uh, a live episode or two. Uh, I'd love to do some um, – yeah, we could do a book club or a movie club of some sort. Like, I, you know, we could do something around the – there's so many different sort of uh, adjuncts there. Um We'd love to do, um, uh, you know, some uh, documentary type stuff. And there's a whole bunch of things, but it just, it requires time and it's not, um, this isn't the day job. So when it becomes the day job and and we have to make a living at it for now, it's just been more of a passion project, but um, we appreciate, uh, you know, all the listeners and stuff. And we haven't even hit up people with Patreon or any of that kind of stuff yet. So there's probably a bunch more things we can do to make it even better. Um, but, uh, I'd like to think that, uh, that's all yet still to come. So, um, if I don't exhaust myself first. Well, I know there's a lot of people out there that can't wait to see what's coming. So everybody, Tim Halen, good seats still available. I highly recommend it. Tim, thanks for taking the time. I really had a great time talking to you. Oh, Aaron, I appreciate the, uh, the outreach and, uh, it was, uh, uh, likewise, I appreciate your, uh, your interest and it was a pleasure chatting with you too. Hopefully we'll talk again sometime.